welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Jane with the pink hair. Oh my god, I'm like overwhelmed by how pretty you are. Like, I really can't look at you. Stop. Sarah has been like what I've needed in my life. She's been hyping me up so much. Because you deserve it. it's been very much needed. Thank you. Because I literally in my life that I see in person have had very mixed reviews. My like coworker that I'm good friends with reacted positively. My students were kind of like today were just kind of shocked and keep being like, I gotta get used to it. It's throwing me off, is what one of them kept saying to me today. And mm. my family had very mixed reviews. And <laughs> it, mm. it's been a whole thing, but my friends have been very good about it. And the thing is, I like it, and I think that's what matters. It is. So. That is absolutely what matters. And I'm so glad that you like it. I think you look so good. I literally have shown everybody I know who knows Jane, like all my roommates. I've been like, look at it and then tell me how pretty she looks because like, I just want to shower you with compliments because it looks so good. And I just like, I know that this is like your dream hair in a lot of ways. Like you've said for so long that you've wanted to do this. And so I just want to like, like a, it looks amazing because it looks amazing, but B, it also looks amazing because you did something that you wanted to do for forever. And like that in itself is an incredible thing. I just can't stop looking at it. Cause I, I don't know. Sometimes I get a, like a glimpse of it out of the corner of my eye and I get like terror because it, I feel like it kind of looks like I don't know it, it looks kind of crazy in some from some angles it has but real so lava pretty. girl energy it does but then it's like I'll get a better look and I'll think about it and be like no I like it what killed me the most was yesterday I saw um some extended family members and they did not acknowledge it they didn't <laughs> I, I was like and I didn't bring it up. I was right. going to be like, hey, what do you think of my new hair? Right. You, it kind of speaks first time for itself. Seen in a couple of years. And they didn't even. Granted, they had seen my father earlier that day. And mm-hmm. maybe he was like, Jane's hair is different. So they were expecting it. It still would be weird to not have a reaction. Like if I saw someone for the first time in a while and they had bright pink hair, I'd absolutely be like, oh my God, your hair. I know. I get offended when people at work don't notice I highlighted my hair, <laughs> let alone if I dyed it. Oh, you, Sarah, like, it's less of a drastic transition, but Sarah has also recently gotten her hair done, and it looks very good as well. Thank you. She's I got my- queen. Yes, I have, I got my, my highlights and my 70s fringe cut, so. It's not yeah. fringe, it's like a, it just frames my face, and I, it, it's all, it's all about the center part. Um but I didn't color my hair. Although you, like truly you doing this, I was like, that's it. This winter, navy blue hair, I'm doing it. Now that you've done your pink hair, I'm going to do my navy blue It's definitely like more dramatic than I thought it was going to be, especially talking Mm -hmm. to the girl who was doing it. But then when she was Mm -hmm. done, I was like, oh my God, like. (laughs) It's so cool. And she did a really good job of like balayaging it though. So I think it'll grow out in a way that won't look terrible. Yeah. But my plan is because now it's like my main goal in going to get it professionally done, which was like more expensive Mm -hmm. than doing it myself would have been. But I was just worried Mm -hmm. about the bleaching aspect of it. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew if I did that myself, I would majorly damage my hair. So she, yeah. So I was glad I had it professionally um, bleached for the most part. Mm -hmm. So now, like, once the color fades, I can start using like a color depositing conditioner or 
I can start doing those types of things myself, but I don't want to bleach my hair by myself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm super happy for you. (laughs) Thank you so much. That's, I feel like I've unlocked a whole, like, like I've leveled up truly. You have. Anything else major happen? I mean, I dyed my hair. Anything big in your life? No, no. Um, I went to Ikea. I got a new stuffed animal. They're sitting with me right now. Um, big, big, big development. Truly, someone over the weekend asked me, what did you do? And I said, I went to Ikea. They're like, oh, what'd you get? And I was like, I got a dinosaur stuffed animal. And they were like, that's amazing. I was like, it really was. You have no idea. Um, that's really all that's going on with me right now besides finishing a semester, another semester of school. Yeah. Anyway, I am ready to get started. Okay. Well, I think this was a really fun and uplifting topic and I had a lot of fun learning about it. I don't remember what I asked you about. You asked me about the history of Sesame Street, which was a very pure and positive thing to be. Yeah. I don't know from the way you asked it. I don't know if there's a specific story you're looking for about the, like how it started, but, um, I don't really have that. I just have, you know, a little history and a lot of facts. So Mm -hmm. Sesame Street made its broadcast debut debut on November 10th, 1969. It went on to become one of the most widely viewed children's programs in the world. It Mm -hmm. airs in more than 120 countries and it is produced in 70 different languages. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. But three years before its debut, the idea for the show was conceived. Television producer Joan Gans Cooney and the VP of the Carnegie Foundation, Lloyd Morissette, had the idea that they could use the addictive quality of television to create something that would be a positive influence on the lives of children. Mm-hmm. Joan Gans Cooney, by the way, was one of the first female American television executives, and she's considered one of the most successful because this show has gone on to be such a hit. It's been more than 40 years, maybe more than 50 now. Yeah, 2016 would have been 50 years. So this insanely mm-hmm. long-running, very popular yeah. um, thing was made by a woman. The biggest idea behind the show um, was that it was specifically aimed at very small children who hadn't started school yet. And the goal was to expose them to learning subjects such as letters and numbers so that they could more easily transition to school. What makes this so remarkable is that the people that this most directly helps is underprivileged families who cannot afford Mm -hmm. nannies or private teachers or a parent who stays at home to teach their kids. Aside from all of that, there are just so many advantages that wealthier families have academically. Mm-hmm. So this was one way of giving mm-hmm. poorer families a bit more of a leg up when it came to the beginning of childhood education. I remember that being a really big um, topic of discussion when uh, Sesame Street was going to be put on HBO Max or that Sesame Street was getting under the possession of HBO because HBO is a premium subscription service and people were like you're taking Mm -hmm. away this like thing that was created for public access and like making it only there for an exclusive audience. I had previously been told that Sesame Street was based on a real street 
um, mm -hmm. in New York City that was a very diverse neighborhood and it was specifically aimed to be mm -hmm. for children that lived in this type of neighborhood. And I do think that the setting of it aesthetically and with the fact that there's so much diversity of the people in the show um, is reminiscent mm -hmm. of a neighborhood like that, but there wasn't an actual Sesame Street. Um, although mm -hmm. for the 50th anniversary, West, the intersection of West 63rd Street and Broadway in New York City was renamed Sesame Street. So I think it is still a yeah, I remember that. Map. It'll pr probably say West 63rd Street, but now there is a real Sesame Street. I saw a hilarious tweet yesterday that was um, about Twitter, Twitter's rules about how you can get verified and the people who can and can't be verified with the blue check. And they were like, fictional characters is one of the things that can't, one of the categories for people that can't be verified but big bird is verified on twitter so they were like big bird's real <laughs> i was gonna say i was like i would hope that because several of the muppets have twitters so yeah. i would hope that the real ones are the ones like get verified so that all the randos out there that are like i'm elmo like pretending get to be, verified yeah. Yeah. Right. But they were saying, oh, we that's, don't verify fictional funny. characters. Big Bird's real. That's like, Big Bird's real. Big Bird's not fictional. He lives here. He lives in the city. I mean, I guess he is a physical being. He's just a puppet. He needs a person. Yeah. So he's mm -hmm. a thing. Yeah. And But uh, no, no, no. Don't listen to me, kids. He's a person. He's real. He's a bird. <laughs> I don't think any big kids bird. are to our show. He's a big bird. <laughs> The author Malcolm Gladwell said of the show, mm -hmm. Sesame Street was built around a single breakthrough insight that if you can hold the attention of children, you can educate them, which is totally true. There was a popular 1960s variety show called Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, L-A-U-G-H-I-N, and mm -hmm. that was made up of short sketches and it was formatted with a mix of live actors, animation, and puppets. Mm -hmm. And it was mostly comical in nature. So this structure and format and style was um, heavily like used as the inspiration for how Sesame Street was initially set up. Some critics immediately said that the show was bad for children because the short segments were shrinking children's attention spans. Um, I would argue that children's attention spans are already short, so it's good to give them short right. lessons that like get to the point and get out of there <laughs> right um i don't think and clearly like uh it's yeah, fine that didn't hold water. <laughs> i will say one thing that is super cool about the show is that again it was thought up in 1966 but it didn't go to air until 1969 and that is because the creators took two years to do research they formed the Aww. children's television workshop and applied for a series of grants for which they received money from the U.S. government, the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And Aww. the money totaled to $8 million, which adjusted for oh, inflation shit. is $56 million in today's money. Oh, my God. And they invested heavily in research. And it was such a revolutionary show because it was the first television program targeted to preschoolers that based its content and its lessons on laboratory and formative research and like prove child psychology mm -hmm. and ways to help them learn. That's so cool. Which is amazing. 
During the pre-production process, Joan Gans Cooney hired puppeteer Jim Henson to create the puppets mm -hmm. for the show. The cast of characters that became staples of the show included Burton Ernie, Cookie Monster, Oscar the Grouch, Grover, and Big Bird. History.com. Sesame Street character. Oh, who's my favorite? I don't know. I loved Elmo as a kid. Um, I loved Elmo's World I also, a lot. Oh, Elmo's World was great. Um, my brothers were really into Grover. I, I guess I was too. My mom had a really funny voice she would use when she read the books. It was very scratchy. Grover! I loved Big Bird. Um, but I also loved me some Burton. Love me some Burton Ernie. That's very sweet. Burton Ernie. <laughs> I love that meme that's like one of them is wearing a trash can over their head. And the other one's like, have you seen the trash can? And the other one's like, look me in the eyes and say and ask that again. <laughs> ask that again. <laughs> that's you and me in a nutshell. <laughs> look me in the eyes and ask me that again. <laughs> um, History.com, when describing the creation of the Muppets, they phrased it as a family of puppets known as the Muppets. And that set me down like a mental rabbit hole of like, are all these characters related? And is their last name Muppet? But that can't <laughs> be true. That that can't be true based on what the Muppets Many turned other into. Things. And that some of them date. Like, <laughs> they, they wouldn't do that. By the mid-70s, the uh, Sesame Street had become an American institution Again, it's been mm. over, it's been 55 years at this point. It's a solid part of our culture at this point, I would say. As the yeah. show progressed, they fought very hard to evolve with the times and be very sensitive to uh, what we were learning about how to be, you know, kind to others and respectful of all different mm -hmm. walks of life. They aim to keep their cast and crew as diverse as possible. They place an emphasis on hiring women and people of color uh, in the cast and in the writer's room and in the crew. In 1981, the federal government withdrew its funding. So the CTW turned to, um, turned to and expanded other financial sources, such as the magazine they are publishing, children's book royalties, Sesame Street toys, product licensing and other donut don't I was gonna say donors donuts. donuts and, and donors they sold donuts that's how Sesame Street is being kept afloat by the sale of donuts and other donors including foreign broadcasting income mm -hmm. those that would be a good brand of donuts though Sesame Street donuts like you could have mm -hmm. ones with blue frosting that are like mm -hmm. Grover or the Cookie Monster. You could have one with like cookie dough in it. That's the, that cookie, would be the monster. cookie Monster. Sesame Street, call me. I'm ready to help. Sesame Street has expanded its curriculum from simply academic subjects to topics such as relationships, ethics, and emotions. Mm. They're really out here trying to just help our kids be good people. And that's very sweet. Yeah, Many storylines came. I know. Many storylines come straight from the lives of the writing staff, cast, and crew. When actor Will Lee, who played the character of Mr. Hooper, passed away in 1982, they wrote it into the show and had a episode that just mm -hmm. went straight into discussing death with children and what it's like when a loved one pass passes away and how difficult that is and how to um, handle those emotions. 
And that was considered like very historic that they were just like, yep, this happened and we're going to talk about it, uh, which is great. Yeah, I remember I've like I watched some some podcast when they talked about it. I forget exactly what it was, but I've heard that was like a really grand. Well, that was in 1982. So it was over a decade. I know we weren't alive. Yeah, I know we were in a library. I feel like I read about it in like one of my textbooks or something. I don't know. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. When actress Sonia Manzano married fellow actor Richard Regan, who she played Maria and he played Luis, uh, their marriage was written into the show and there was like an episode where they got married. I'm pretty sure Big Bird was the officiant. (laughs) And Aw, that's so cute. (laughs) That's really sweet. It is. And the birth of their daughter was also written into the show, which I think is really cute. That's so and their baby, like, played herself. Like, they were just like, here's our dad. In That's the really late adorable. 90s, a lot of other children's television shows were being created and were becoming very popular. So they made a couple structural changes in order to, you know, compete with all of the other mediums mm-hmm. that they were up against. They mm-hmm. changed the structure to be more narrative and have more ongoing storylines to follow. So, like, you would turn it, mm. you, so you'd be more likely to tune into an episode because you'd be like, well, I want to see what's going on with that, with that storyline. Oh, yeah. Elmo also had become a very popular character, so they made his own segment, Elmo's World. na 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 Elmo's World. Elmo's World. I used to get so frustrated at Mr. Noodles. I'd be like, Mr. Noodles, that's not what Elmo said. It's like watching Dora and she's like not listening to you. (laughs) Yeah. And oh my God, I couldn't handle it. It would like maybe want to rip my hair out. I would scream at the television. I would be like, no, Dora. (laughs) I'd be like, she'd be like, stand up. And I'd be like, I'm standing. I didn't have like rage because of it. It's right there. I saw one post online recently. I forget where I saw it. But I don't think this is the creators of Dora's intention, but they were like, if you watch the show with the lens that Dora is vision impaired, it makes it a very delightful viewing experience because she's literally not even attempting to look and she has an animal with her the whole time that's like, you could interpret as her guide animal boots. Uh, So it's kind of sweet to be like, oh, there's representation of people who have vision impairment. Back to the other children's show we're discussing. Here's a list of times that the show really tried to make a change when people thought that something should be discussed or something was problematic and they wanted them to stop discussing it. Uh, The worst one I saw, most of them are good. And I do think the change they made was good, but this like starts initially bad. So in 1970, they introduced this character called Roosevelt Franklin, and he was considered the first black Muppet. Uh, The puppet is magenta. So there must have been like dialogue explanation for how they knew the race of this character and just how he culturally identified, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And the point of the character was to give lessons on African culture and geography. But the main issue is that they also gave him character traits such as that he was rowdy and a bad influence on other kids. And he was in detention all the time. And Mm -hmm. he was, perceived as perpetuating harmful stereotypes of black people. So the, they, after five years of having him on the show, they removed him and said specifically that it was because they didn't want to continue perpetuating stereotypes. So I think the decision to remove him was good. 
you know, the start of it wasn't great, but I do think it shows that they listened to their audience and the fact that they were like, okay, this is harmful. We'll make a change. Right. This I find very interesting. Snuffleupagus was originally written as a figment of Big Bird's imagination. He was introduced in 1971 as Big Bird's like imaginary friend or like seemingly imaginary friend because only Big Bird would ever see him or talk to him. He would never be on screen with other characters and no other characters believed Big Bird when he was like, yeah, I have this friend. He's giant and he's fluffy and he's my friend. And they'd be like, yeah, okay, Big Bird. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) But in the 1980s, I know. In the 1980s, there was a series of childhood sexual assault cases that were making headlines, and some viewers expressed worries to the Sesame Street writers that they didn't love that there was a childlike character on television who believed in something so wholeheartedly, and no one listened to him. Mm. So in 1985, they wrote an episode where Snuffleupagus appeared in front of all the other cast members and they all saw him and there was this scene written where they apologized to big bird for not believing him and they told him that he could feel free to be honest with them and from then on they would believe him no matter what he he said to them which is very sweet and from then on snuffleupagus was just a character that everybody knew and saw (laughs) that's very wholesome i know and it's not even like, like, I don't even think there's anything super harmful that, of being like, he has an imaginary friend. But I do like that people were like, mm, yeah. it's not fun that all these people are like, we don't believe you, Big Bird. You may have heard the rumors that Cookie Monster was being changed from Cookie Monster to Veggie Monster. <laughs> this was in response to growing concern starting around 2005 that Cookie Monster was a bad influence in a time that there is a growing obesity issue in our country. The writers heard these compl- in joy. <laughs> I know. The writers um, heard these complaints and they were like, well, we'll start writing in lessons about healthy eating into our show. And so this rumor went around that was totally unfounded uh, that they were going to change his name to Veggie Monster. And this was mainly like left-wing people who were like, the woke police are coming for Sesame Street and like trying... Like, literally all of their complaints are always just, like, from leftists who, or not leftists, uh, just conservatives who, like, are not paying attention to what's actually on the show and are complaining that, you know, Mm -hmm. children are being educated in a way that they don't agree with, even though it's, like, based on facts and research. And Anyway, so this rumor was going around, but there were segments that they were writing featuring Cookie Monster to talk about healthy eating, including one where another character helped cookie monster come to the realization that it's okay to love cookies but cookies are sometimes food while fruit and vegetables are an anytime food Mm. and in 2010 cookie monster's twitter page posted in 2010 and i love this here's the direct quote direct quote yes all caps me eat vegetables no not going to be called vegetable monster this whole thing silly (laughs) tell him cookie monster tell him cookie monster yeah. In 2010, Katy Perry appeared on the show, but she was wearing a low-cut top, so some parents complained, and the show announced that they would be releasing her music video on YouTube only and not on television. The complaint was that the show is meant for preschoolers, so it was inappropriate. I kind of disagree with this, 
and I'm, I'm glad that it's at least on YouTube because I think it's kind of nice to have a woman who's just being unapologetic about her body because that's not even the subject of the, the video and just to have right. Elmo and next it's to her, only like sexual not even because... commenting on it and being respectful and like letting her be right. herself. <laughs> Right, and it's only sexual so, because they yeah. made it sexual, you know? Like, I agree Like, with she you. knew, she knew she was going to be in a segment with Elmo that was meant for kids. She wasn't like, I'm going to go seduce him. She was just like, I'm going to put on this fun Also, green there are stylists. It seems weird. It seems yeah. weird to me that they're like, <gasps> like, they think that their four-year-old are going to be scandalized by Katy Perry's cleavage. But, like, a four-year-old would ne- yeah. never think of that. My kids touch my chest all the time, I promise you when they try to get my attention, like, I promise you, they don't recognize that I, that I have boobs and that, like, they're a sexual yeah. object to some, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This quote-unquote scandal was not the fault of Sesame Street, but in 2011, uh, the Sesame Street YouTube channel was hacked and the hackers posted mm-hmm. a bunch of porn videos, which was- Oh, I remember and- this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and like 140,000 people or something saw it. And it was a bit, oh my God. It was a bit much, but Sesame Street took, con- took <laughs> control and apologized and explained it and wasn't their fault. And then <laughs> this is just a fun bullet point, but I thought the discussion of er- Bert and Ernie being a potentially gay couple was a recent thing. Mm-hmm. No, like literally since the 70s people have been like are they a gay couple and (laughs) sesame street is constantly like no they are not um and i i think we can maybe at least say they're like homoromantic or something like they're i don't know like i agree that we don't need to place this like put a sexuality on these muppets like we don't like i'm not worried about their sex lives but like you know we can maybe but we could show two men having romantic feelings for each other or having affection for each other being yeah loving each other yeah they bicker like married like a married couple i'd be like oh yeah it's non-toxic masculinity and like really it is but also again they're like muppets and it's just like (laughs) it's funny to watch them bicker and lastly here are just some fun facts and historic moments or characters from the show in the 90s they had an episode where a white character had to stand up to a different white character when they were being racist and telling her that she had to stop being friends with a black character. None of, oh. none of those three characters were Muppets. They were all people, people, mm-hmm. human actors. Mm-hmm. In the seventies, they had an episode where a woman breastfed and explained it to Big Bird. Oh, that was a little normalizing of that. In 2001, they did an episode where they brought a New York city firefighter on to explain nine 11. Hmm. So they don't stray away from hard topics. Like for the most part, yeah. it's like the show's not all about that. Obviously, like we've all seen Sesame Street. I don't need to explain Sesame Street to you all, but like they're not afraid to go into tough topics, and I like that. Mm-hmm. A 15-month-old boy with Down syndrome named Jason appeared on appeared numerous times on the show. He was a son of one of the writers, and they wanted to provide representation from that and. You know, again, a lot of this was pulled from the writers' own lives. So they were like, this is things we really experience. So why not teach kids yeah. about what it's like to experience these things? Yeah, absolutely. In the 90s, they had a segment where a girl in a wheelchair explained how her chair worked and what the parts of it were. And she had a song for it that was to the tune of Wheels on the Bus. 
Mm-hmm. And it, one author said about this, um, who I believe was also a writer on the show, they said, uh, we include kids with disabilities just as part of the gang. Children in the audience get validation when they see others like themselves. Their siblings receive gratifying reinforcement seeing kids like those in their own families. We take the strangeness out of it. Why should difference be equated with fear? Which is very nice. I love, I love that. In 2002, the South African version of the program, which is called Takalani Sesame, introduced a five-year-old Muppet character named Kami. Kami, maybe? It's K-A-M-I. And Mm -hmm. he is HIV positive. And this was to help remove stigma for children living with this disease. I love that. In 2006, Abby Kadabi became the first lead female Muppet on the show. Yes, Abby. (laughs) <laughs> oh my mom loves abby Kadabi. i think it's a lot of it is that her name is abby but she would like like take clippings of articles that people were writing about abby Kadabi and like put them up around our house she loves abby Kadabi. also in 2006 this one is is very relevant to the current moment uh, but the israeli production of sesame street introduced rechav sumsum i hope i'm pronouncing that correctly he was the first Muppet to speak Hebrew and Arabic. He is an oh. Arab-Israeli bilingual Muppet. And the goal of introducing him was to help promote tolerance amongst Israeli children um, and in those regions during a time of growing Israeli-Palestinian conflict and oh. to teach them, like, here is a character who has, you know, cult- a variety of cultural backgrounds and we can still love them regardless of where they're from, which is very sweet. It's like uh, so much of this is like, Oh, that's children of the future, you know? And we're and like, also it's like us. Sesame street does all this stuff that like the actual American education system doesn't do, you know? Oh yeah. 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 Um, one quote about this character was children today growing up in Israel are living in a very temp- tense time. This was written by um, Alona apt, the producer of, Rechav Shumsum, which is that character. Re- I don't, I'm trying my best to pronounce this. I think it's Rechav Sumsum. Mm-hmm. It's R-E-C-H-O-V-S-U-M-S-U-M. This is not one um, to ask me about. Yeah, I don't know. But I apologize if I'm butchering that pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Um, and they told this to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. They are affected at a very early age in terms of their aggressiveness to each other. The main goal is to show a different kind of reality, a different kind of street, to show children what common life can look like. In 2009, I love this fact, they did a, they like took a hit at Fox News and Fox News went nuts. (laughs) There's an episode where Groucher, where Oscar the Grouch appeared as a news anchor on what they called the Grouchy News Network or GNN. And during his segment, (laughs) um, he receives a call from a viewer who says, from now on, I'm watching Pox News. Now there's a trashy news show. And (laughs) they like, like Fox News roasted them for this. And oh like God. later, a That's PBS representative so was like, we shouldn't have done that. Like we didn't intend to offend. And like, we maybe should have thought that out before we did it. But honestly, I say good for them. I like, loved it. I loved it. <laughs> That's hilarious. That literally was someone in the writer's room being like, I am petty. Let's put in this joke. Yeah. And they like, yes. In 2017, they introduced a Muppet named Julia, who is autistic. 
She premiered mm-hmm. during Autism Awareness Month, which is April. It just passed. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the goal of having her was to promote education around the topic and inclusion and representation. There has been a character with an incarcerated father. And in 2016, there was an Afghan Muppet named Zari who came on the show to talk about girls' rights and promoting feminism. In 2019, a character was introduced whose mother is battling addiction in order to help kids learn in a safe space about the opioid epidemic. And in 2010, they had a music video featuring a black female Muppet called I Love My Hair, where she celebrated all different styled and natural ways that she could wear her hair and how she loved them all and they were all amazing. And my final little fun fact here is that they even had an episode in the 80s where they discussed adoption and how there were many different ways to make a family. So I did notice that I think the one sort of, I I think the next step they can take is is that I I don't see a a lot of discussion of LGBT issues. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't been keeping up on my Sesame Street, so who knows, maybe they are like introducing characters that have like same-sex parents or certain things but that was just like I didn't see that on the internet being discussed a lot as much as Mm -hmm. the other types of inclusion that they were working on so like Mm -hmm. I don't know just just something to notice overall I think they're amazing and I'm loving what they're what they're doing well thank you that was very wholesome that was very very wholesome it was I might go watch a Muppets movie after this well are you ready to okay continue forward yeah my middle segment is a little less light, but it's, it's just kind of something that I wanted to bring up. Um, mm-hmm. we, I've been discussing this with a couple groups of friends um, because I feel like, well, we were talking about the fact that there's sort of an unwritten rule that everybody seems to follow that if you are having a baby, you cannot post about it until you are like a certain amount of months along. And yeah, I, I, I was watching recently, um, Colleen Ballinger is, you know, she's the Miranda Sings YouTuber. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. she posted a video recently and like on social media, she's been announcing that she is currently having twins Oh shit. and she's not very I saw far that she along. Was and I the reason she was having twins, I know. Well, she, I watched a lot of her content when she was pregnant with her first kid and Same. I've watched some interviews with her since, and she had a very negative experience. She felt very ill. She had a couple of different um, conditions that just made her have a very negative experience of pregnancy. She said many times, like, I don't regret my, like having my baby. I love my baby, and I'm so glad I was pregnant, but I, like, will never do it again. If we have kids in the future, we will adopt. Like, she said so many times, like, I will never get pregnant again. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden she was like, I'm having twins. And it was like, so right. And I watched uh, her video and she kind of started off being like, if you watch my channel at all, you will know that I was vehemently against ever having a baby ever again. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it was an intentional choice was that she like previously, um, I wouldn't be saying this like on the air if she hadn't Just, put it out herself, yeah. but um, she had an accidental pregnancy with her husband Um a couple months prior and she had she said she spent like the uh, it took her a little while to you know adjust and mm-hmm. she really changed her frame of mind of like she had to go from not wanting to be being not wanting to be pregnant to okay I'm pregnant and 
the, and I accepted and now I love my baby and she got all excited and she loved her and then she sadly had a miscarriage then so then she and her husband decided to intentionally have another baby and then they yeah. ended up getting pregnant with twins but so many people were telling her like you can't post about it you can't post about it because what if you have another miscarriage and I do mm-hmm. like I've so sadly seen so many women the past few years posting about miscarriages and I feel like so many people have been like, oh, you can't break that rule. You can't post about it until you're certain, a certain amount of months, like the first year into the second trimester mm-hmm. or what have you, because you have to make sure everything's okay. Because miscarriage is a issue that affects so many women. Mm-hmm. It's very, like miscarriages happen so much more often than it seems. It's a very common issue that many women deal with. Mm-hmm. And Colleen Ballinger made a point that I really agreed with and I never considered before because I was always the person, a person that was like, yeah, you're right. You really got to be careful and not tell people until it's, mm-hmm. uh, until it's like safe to, mm-hmm. because then you, because I was thinking like that protects yourself. You won't have to go through right. the really sad experience of having to tell people. But mm-hmm. she pointed out that that kind of silences women. Mm-hmm. And if we create these unspoken rules that, we don't want to hear about it if you have a miscarriage. So you shouldn't tell us if you're pregnant until it's very safe. Right. Um, I don't, I think that's very harmful. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Overall, I guess I just wanted to bring up this discussion. Yeah. And say that I feel like there's a lot of topics going around right now of like what's okay to post and like what's okay to do when you're pregnant. And like, we should just let women be like, yeah. if they want to share this news, good for them. It's they've made the decision to risk it. And mm-hmm. even if they do get pregnant and then they don't, and then they sadly have a miscarriage, like it's not their responsibility to announce that either. So <laughs> I don't know. Right. I think women should be allowed to handle their information and their choices as they see fit. Can I, can I respond? Yes. Okay. So th- this, I'm going to get a little off topic of miscarriage, but what I'm, what I'm saying yeah. is in the right frame of ref is in the right frame of yes thought, and I think that th- I was actually having a conversation that was similar to this um, with my roommate recently, um, because I think that we I agree with what you're saying that um, we sort of tell people that we can't post about it, and it's because that we as a society don't want to have to deal with other people's grief. And I say that not in a way that I'm not trying to sound pessimistic. I'm not trying to be like, we don't care about each other because it's not necessarily about not caring. It's that we as a society are highly untrained in, in helping people through grief without either Mm. making it about ourselves or becoming very uncomfortable and like, or feeling this need to have to fix it are having to offer some sort of alternative instead of just accepting grief. And I recently read, um, I actually read a graphic novel about this specifically, that this woman wrote um, that is about um, how she coped with her mom's sudden death when she was in college. And I think this is mm-hmm. also what Fun Home is about, I think, which Fun Home is my, is my favorite musical, is one of my favorite books. I love Fun Home. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think Fun Home was Alison Bechtel's way of coping with grief. And I say this, I say, I say all this about grief because I think that we as a society tell people when and when they can't 
grieve or what grieving has to look like. And I say this, I, I, I say this from the very particular stance that when I was 15 and my dad passed away, I felt I didn't have the space mm-hmm. to grieve. And I didn't recognize that mm-hmm. until I was much older. And it's because now I recognize that that when I bring up my dad, often the response that I get from people is that, that the conversation has to take a turn into being about grief or that if I bring up my dad, that's mm. because I'm feeling upset or whatever, that I no longer, he's no longer an open topic of discussion because he is a person who yeah. I grieve. And I think the thing that we need to understand about grief is that grief is sort of an active, ever-present thing. You know, it's a, it's a verb, but it's also like an adjective, like being a grieving person you could be grieving for an indefinite amount of time, you know? And I know people, and I know people who, like I had a friend in high school who his, he was supposed to be a twin and his twin didn't make it. And his parents grieved Mm. his lost twin his entire life. They continued to to miss that twin, you know? And it's an ongoing thing. And so I think there's this, um, there's this very, there's this very difficult position that we put people in who have experienced intense loss, like the loss of a child or the loss of a parent, where uh, the mere act of talking about them, people assume is, is a way, is, is, is a negative expression, right? Is a expression of loss or pain or sadness or whatever. And that's just simply not true. And so I think women in particular become very hesitant to share their experience with pregnancy or their thoughts on pregnancy because there is this fear that once the conversation is out there, that is all the conversation is going to be because that's how we treat Mm -hmm. it, you know? And so you know, once a person, once you know a fact about a person, once you know they lost a baby or they lost a parent or a sibling or whatever it is, you no longer can talk about that thing without it being, without it provoking sadness. And often it's not provoking sadness in the person that, that actually lost that person. It's provoking sadness in the other, in, in the other because we don't know how to properly actually read other people's emotions or responses to loss we just know oh death is sad and therefore this is sad you know and people don't like to feel sad so it all becomes this like I think people gatekeep grief I do but I don't think it's being gatekept by the people that actually experience the loss I think it is very much I think, I think all of the ways that we talk about loss are set, uh, the tone is consistently set by the person who did not experience that loss, is what I'm trying to say, is that it is never yeah. up to, like, in particular for me, for me specifically, because I can only speak from my experience, when I talk about my dad, even though I am the person speaking about him, and even though this is my experience and my family member, and yes, my loss it is never my emotions that then set the tone of the conversation. It's the way that the people I'm speaking to respond to the fact that I brought him up. And that I think when we, 
allow these conversations to happen and we allow them to be seen as a normal part of life because loss is a normal part of life. We become better at um, actually supporting and responding to the people that are speaking to us and responding to them in the ways that they want to be responded to and not just making assumptions about what they need to hear or what we need to say in order for us to feel like we did something for them. Yes, I see what you're saying. The one thought I keep consistently having in this whole discussion is that whether or not it is discussed, the grieving is still happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it feels like for the people who aren't experiencing it, like, oh, it's not part of my life. And then if somebody brings it up to me, it's suddenly like, oh, you've brought in this other element that's now changed the subject. So I must come up with right. how to respond. Right. When it, but there's it not a lot of it. always a part of life yeah. and we shouldn't be hide. Exactly. We shouldn't have, feel like we have to hide it. Exactly. And I think what we don't acknowledge is that regardless if, regardless if it's the constant topic of conversation, it is a constant it, I don't want to be like we're defined by the people that we lost or whatever because I don't think that's true but I think what's different what's different is that for me it is always a part of my life it's just a fact you know yeah. like yeah. that is just a, that is a major thing that happened to me in my life that transformed me as a person so to me I'm like yeah of course that's on my mind of course you know, it's no, it's always sort of on the periphery of my mind. So then when I bring it up, people yeah. are all of a sudden snapped to attention. And so when people are suddenly jerked by the conversation, it's like, oh, right, this isn't always, you know, this is, this is just like a part of my life now. Uh, and I think we, mm-hmm. we become that way that we're like, oh, right, you go through all these things. And I definitely do it too. I'm not saying that I'm, that I'm innocent of doing that. I, I'm not, you know, I do it as well. Um, but I think there's something valuable about letting people be able to just like say a thing about a bad thing that happened to them and just let them say it you know that you don't it's not your responsibility unless they want comfort it's not your responsibility to try to comfort them or try to like I think the automatic um response is try to get them to stop thinking about it or try to like comfort them but like, what if it's not something they want to mm-hmm. not think about? Like you have, ev- they have every right to want to also think about it too, you know? Yeah. Well, that was my, like my entire initial point is like, we just need to be careful when we're telling people that they can't talk about something mm-hmm. like, because the the discussion of like, when you can post about pregnancy is very much framed as you shouldn't post until things are very safe and very like for sure is for sure because happen. I don't want you to have to have the experience of telling me right and we should make sure that we're not that what we're secretly thinking is not like because I don't want to have to hear about it right absolutely any more thoughts to add to that I feel like I should have like an eloquent ending but I have no none. that was just the main thing I mean I'm glad it became a larger discussion but mm-hmm. like my main point going into this was like when people are creating life like let them let them do their thing. Right. They go through a lot. <laughs> right. And like people can, can share whatever. Gender reveals and all that. That's a whole separate discussion. Yeah. Well, we don't need to. I we don't also need to. think a lot of that is personal choice. Yeah. It's a whole separate thing. It's a whole separate thing. Great. Um, are you ready to but learn yeah. about traffic laws? <laughs> yeah. This is easily the randomest thing I've ever looked up. 
I was like, I can't believe I know this now. Like truly my first note, I did these notes. It's like, been on the books though for so long. It has. I did these yeah. notes a while ago. So I'm, I might be rediscovering some information, but truly my first <laughs> note was, I can't believe this is a thing I know about now. <laughs> so the first motor vehicle was invented by German engineer Carl Benz in 1886. Okay, that's earlier than I thought, by the way. I was like, oh yeah, it was like early 1900s. No, 1880s, first car. Who, who would have thought? In the year 1900, there were fewer than 10,000 cars in the world. So the first 14 years of motor vehicles existing, not a lot happening there. But then, what car, Jane? What car changed everything? You know this, Jane. Jane! My brain first goes, the Volkswagen. Jane! Chitty, I don't know, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? What? <laughs> Wait, what car, <laughs> what car changed everything that you're mad at me about? Um, I'm sending you back in to high school in 1908. The year doesn't matter, Jane. What car? What was the car that changed everything? I'm sending you back to American history the class. The Ford? I, yes! Um, no. Uh, yes! The oh. Model T Ford! Did you not go to high school history class? I feel class? like I don't remember the segment of history class in which we discussed the Model T Ford. Oh my god, this was a this joke. might be something you know a lot about because your mother has like knows about vintage cars my family has, i have no experience no this is like like henry ford okay the creation of the model t ford <laughs> was a direct result of like the assembly line and the industrial revolution it's like you learned about you learned about C carnegie mellon and rockefeller and um jp morgan and henry ford like those were like the guys those I, were the guys i remember learning about those other ones what jane Okay. All right. All right. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have a talk later. Fun fact: Henry Ford was also was almost on the Titanic, and then he wasn't. <laughs> um, good thing too. Okay. So the Model T Ford, I can't believe you, was released on the market on October first, nineteen oh eight, and I wrote as we know from history class, but I guess maybe just me, as I know from history class, this car was far more accessible to the average Joe. So the number of cars on the road drastically increased and it was more accessible. I didn't think I'd have to explain this, but I, I will. It was more accessible because instead of pieces having to be custom made to make a car, like the cars previous to it, it was a model. It had a, it had a specific uh, blueprint. So they could put it into a factory and the factory would output all those different pieces and they could be assembled into a car, which is how cars are made now. Uh, they weren't all custom. So they could be made a lot faster and a lot cheaper. And this was like a huge turning point for industry in America that we figured out how to assembly line make a car. Mm -hmm. Which meant by 1910, remember 1900, 10,000 cars. By 1910, there were over 130,000 cars, 35,000 trucks, and 150,000 motorcycles in the U.S. alone. Oh, so that's like 30 times the amount of cars. Yeah, yeah, 30 times the amount, amount of total motor vehicles, absolutely. Yeah. Now, prior to the 1920s, 
traffic law regulations, whatever, were localized. It was up to the local government. And that was because like the disbursement of cars in the country was really varied. You know, in cities, there were more than there were in the country. In the country, it was all horse and buggy still. But it was Connecticut that created the first statewide traffic law in only 1901, which regulated speed um, to a hilarious 12 miles per hour. Going fast at 12 miles an hour. Truly, truly. Um, That same year in 1901. My horses can trot up to 12 miles an hour. Sorry, I had to do the other reference. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, That same year, 1901, New York also became the first state to require vehicle registration. Not the same thing as a driver's license. Vehicle registration is like, you own a car and we have to know that you own a car. So if you kill somebody in the car. Wish we could do that for guns. (laughs) Oh, don't I wish. Oh, how I wish. (laughs) Um, So if you accidentally hurt somebody or destroyed property in your car, they knew who the car belonged to. You couldn't be like, that's that guy's car. (laughs) <laughs> so that happened wasn't pretty me. wasn't there in a, in new york that happened pretty early relatively considering how long it takes for a lot of other things to happen vehicle registration happened very quickly at this time americans began to see an increased rate of traffic related deaths this is the early 1900s as well um, and in particular drunk driving was a problem so this means that not many people mm. had cars but everybody who had cars which makes sense because they would be like richer were also getting really drunk and driving the cars and like obviously this was not a concern to them they didn't see why this would be an issue we didn't have good conceptions of blood alcohol levels, nothing, nothing of the sort. So more cars, people getting drunk. It's not prohibition yet. Lots of issues. We've read the great Gatsby. Mm-hmm. In 1910, we have, this we time have, we have. I'm like, she has to, she has to at least seen the movie, the great Gatsby, which sorry for spoilers. No, I had to read in it great, in high school. Okay. Which sorry for spoilers for the great Gatsby, but I'm assuming you've all read it. So in 1910, the existence of prohibition, <laughs> the existence of prohibition and drunk driving is a thing. I hope that's not a spoiler. <laughs> and also drunk driving. We all know. Although uh, we don't know, we don't know that Daisy um, was drunk, but driving, unsafe driving is a, is a theme in the great oh, okay. okay. So in 1910, nine years after the vehicle registration laws, New York also developed the first laws against driving after drinking. But then by 1920, 10 years later, license plates were also mandatory in all states, but still not a driver's license. So by 1920, New York said, you can't be drunk while driving. People started following their influence and everybody had to have their car registered. So if you owned a car and you were driving a car, the government had to know about it. And so the 1920s saw a general explosion of vehicle usage, especially following World War I, where Um, There was a bit of an economic boom, as you know, the roaring 20s. So that by the end of the decade, there were over 10 million vehicles on the road traveling from state to state. I want you to keep in mind that in 1910, there were about 300,000. Yeah, I'm picturing like a graph that like the curve just like skyrockets. That's exactly what happens. Like extreme exponential growth. And that's because there were also a lot more factories built in the 1910s to accommodate for um, gun 
making for World War One and other valuable resources needed for World War One, And a lot of those factories turned into motor vehicle factories. So the U.S. was quite mm-hmm. literally pumping out vehicles, particularly the Model T Ford. <laughs> I feel like I'm in trouble every time you say those words. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say it again, maybe. No, it's okay. The important thing is that there were 10 million vehicles on the road, but they all were traveling from state to state where the laws differed pretty significantly. Um, there was not sort of a uniform uh, speed limit. There were different rules about um, turning and stopping, but in some states, people still drove on the left. Now you're going to ask me why, Jane. And I finally am here to tell you why people drove on the left. And this still was happening in the 1920s in America. People drove on the left. And that is because it is a leftover practice from horseback riding. Because horseback riding (gasps) is traditionally done on the left side of the road so that others, pedestrians, people with carts, whatever, can pass on the right. So you go on the, you walk on the left, pass on the right. Well, so this was, this was a common practice outside of the cities, but in cities, they had switched over to the right because A, it was more convenient for passengers who were getting into the vehicle from the sidewalk. They were like, oh, if we're going to be picking people up off the street, the side of the street is dirty. We don't want them to have to walk through the gutter. It's better that we're on the right and we can pull Mm -hmm. up to the curb and they get it on the right side, the passenger side. And also cities had crossed over because there were many more cars than there were, there were, or there was the, the horse to car ratio was closer. Therefore they were like, okay, so the cars will have the right side of the road. (laughs) The horses will have the left side of the road. There were enough that they had to distinguish who had which side. But in the country where there were far less cars, they were like, yeah, we'll stay on the same side and we'll just go around them if we need to. Does that make sense? Yes. This created what is known as the deadliest time of American transportation because everyone was driving from city to city, state to state, where in some states you would drive on the right and some states you would drive on the left. And sometimes there would be a horse and sometimes there would be a pedestrian and everyone was running into each other and it was a nightmare. (laughs) quite frankly. (laughs) Detroit News reported that the traffic patterns of the city were, quote, lawless, and it was a bloody mess that resulted in thousands of deaths within city limits. So clearly, this had to be addressed. So throughout the 1920s, the National Safety Council addressed the growing number of traffic deaths by gathering statistics and giving public talks on driving safely. This included adhering to Uh, road laws about which side of the road you're supposed to be on, being aware of pedestrians, slowing down, um, heating stop signs, all these things. In 1903, William P. Eno had published his book, Rules of the Road, um, which called for a need to slow traffic, keep cars on the right, have one-way streets and crosswalks for pedestrians, but it did take a while for people to listen. But those concepts were introduced before this boom in traffic, it was only when this boom mm-hmm. occurred that they were like, yeah, we should start having all of these things. So crosswalks were introduced, one-way streets became more common in cities, and everyone started adhering to the right side of the road. I don't know exactly when this happened. It was sort of like a cultural shift that occurred, um, but it definitely occurred in cities much faster than it occurred in um, the country. But ultimately, yeah, we stayed on the right side of the road and we, our cars 
have the have the driver on the left side because again we were like mass producing these cars where the driver was on the left so we were kind of like okay we have to we have to stay on the right side of the road and that's how we oh. ended up that's how we ended up on that side now i don't know for sure that this is why england stayed on the left side of the road but i am assuming that england just decided to follow and maintain that like horseback riding sensibility of like oh well we always have been on the left and therefore we'll stay on the left i don't know that for a fact mm. but i can tell you that yeah. this is why we moved to the right in america because it was causing a traffic nightmare also if you don't know yeah. this it it is like lawfully recommended to pedestrians and bike riders and sorry not bike riders to pedestrians or anyone on the side of the road that you walk on the left side that you walk facing traffic so that the cars can see you and so they're not approaching from behind you just a note for people and so you can see them coming yes exactly just yeah, a note for people been, i don't yeah and then bike riding is the opposite bike riding they want you to ride with, with yeah. cars yeah they want you to follow cars yeah i don't know i always remember that when you're walking you want to see them coming when you're riding a bike you don't you don't <laughs> That's not the reasons, but no, yeah, that's no. Bike, how I remember it. Biking, they just want you to go with the flow of traffic. Yeah, you're supposed to follow all traffic laws. In 1923, Garrett Morgan patented a traffic signal that stopped uh, vehicles in both directions to change the direction of traffic flow, and this later developed into the three tricolored spotlight. Sorry, stoplight, the tricolored stoplight. So originally what it was, it was like, you know, those like gates that come down when you have the, um, when the train's coming by, it was like that on all four sides. Like mm -hmm. the things would come down and then that would stop the traffic and then they would switch. Oh. Yeah. And then it became the red means stop, yellow means slow down, green means go, traffic light. Um, ironically- There's a traffic light, Sarah knows about this, but there's a traffic light in Portland that when you when you when you're driving past it during the day it looks mostly green mm -hmm. and maybe like a little bit on the turquoise end but you know what it means you're like ah oh, that's green at night i swear it looks blue <laughs> every like the first time i was stopped at it i was like what is what does blue mean what does blue mean i don't know that must just be a weird <laughs> might be a weird color constancy thing i don't know i don't know yeah ironically william p eno who had written that book rules of the road said that stoplights would never work he's like people will never listen they're gonna go too fast and not gonna pay attention he was wrong um when the three-way traffic light was introduced in the 1930s um it was an immediate success to the point where the traffic light has barely changed today we still use the same traffic light that we use in that we used in the 1930s yeah. i'm assuming our traffic lights now have like some extra sensors and that it's not like a person changing the traffic light you know, to be green, but that's what I thought when I was a little kid. Same. I'm convinced that there are some traffic lights that are just like on a timer. It's like 30 seconds and it's just like you, yeah. like every 30 seconds it changes, whatever. And then there are some that I'm convinced have sensors that won't change unless they know a car is coming from the like less dominant direction. I've never proven it and I didn't look it up, but I, I have this theory. Because you know when you're at I that stoplight and it's red, but then like the second you pull up, it turns yellow. I don't know. Yeah, or it turns, or it goes from green to yellow. Yeah. But yeah, when I was a kid, I was convinced 
because you couldn't see like a person, but I thought there was like an underground like <laughs> place where like a person worked and they would watch with it from a camera and then like press the buttons. <laughs> like mm-hmm. now you can go, now you. I definitely thought something similar. That same decade, the 1930s, automakers added other safety features like all steel frames and hydraulic brakes. This also became when industry representatives began advocating for license to drive. Licenses to drive. Um, Mm. Or sorry, that was beforehand. Licenses became required in 1924, but it was like the develop, it was like the 1920s and 30s when traffic was building intensely that um, representatives from Ford General Motors began saying, yes, we should have licenses so that people can drive. They should be able to prove that they can drive safely. In 1927, the Mm -hmm. American Association of State Highway Officials published the two collections of regulations for uniform road construction, signage, and traffic regulations, um, one for urban environments and one for rural. So they did state that they didn't have to follow the same laws in cities as they did in the country. This did become more complicated because in the 1920s, when this was published, 1927, suburbs weren't really a thing yet. Um, So that sort of changed the rules as well when they start to be like, okay, now we have this like in between where we're not in a city, but we're also not in the country. So like, what what do the roads here look like? And it didn't end up being too much of a problem, but that is why you can see some like very, very different traffic laws when you're out in the middle of Pennsylvania versus when you're in Philadelphia. There were these two collections of regulations for uniform road construction, signage, traffic re- regulations in urban environments and in rural environments. But unfortunately, even though they were important frameworks, um, they were often contradictory and they were considerably lacking. And these were finally unified, revised, and expanded to form the 1932 Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which is now the standard for developing traffic laws. Okay. In 1936, Robert Borkenstein invented what he called the, quote, drunkometer. This eventually became the breathalyzer test, but I think the drunkometer is much, much funnier. Um, Borkenstein's <laughs> original invention was a balloon-looking device that determined if a driver was drunk or not. I don't know how a balloon knew that you had alcohol in your system, but it did. Um, however, it was not very precise. So 17 years later, in the 1950s, he pat- he patented the breathalyzer, which was much more effective. So he noticed that his invention could be better, and he went and made edits, and I respect him for that. <laughs> At that time, um, when the drunkometer was invented in, in the 1930s, uh, blood alcohol level of 0.15 was the legal limit, but then they realized that this was way too high, and it was cut pretty much in half <laughs> to 0.08 in 1960. Also in the 1950s, the seat belt was finally introduced. Nash Air Flight was the first American-made vehicle to have seat belts. Um, Everyone else before that was just being a little reckless. Um, But they also didn't really acknowledge, (laughs) like, they thought that people were just really bad drivers. And so they were like, well, Mm -hmm. yeah, if you get into an accident, like, you'll probably die. And then they finally were like, okay, well, we can, like, kind of (laughs) help. Um, (laughs) There are things we can do about that. One year later, airbags were also added to the Nash Air Flight. Um, Nice. Throughout the early 1950s, doctors and university professors began crash testing cars at university sites um, to prove that seatbelts and airbags were needed. 
these tests revealed design flaws and potential bodily impacts on collisions. Um, and these tests convinced manufacturers to also introduce padded dashboards as well as the seatbelt, which both became common in most cars by 1956. So the 1950s is really when they were like, okay, now we can introduce safety within the car. But people like actually needed convincing. They were like, no, it'll be fine. They'll be fine. They're like, no, like if they get in an accident, like they will die. And if they were wearing a seatbelt, they yeah. wouldn't. So that kind of changed things. So thank you, university professors, for doing those tests. The interstate highway system was also created through the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956. And 10 years later, in 1966, the Department of Transportation was formed, which I think it's really crazy that it wasn't until the 60s that we had a Department of Transportation. Up until then, it was just like or a, a federal department of transportation. Up until then, it was all state yeah. departments determining the road laws. And then finally, they were like, no, we like we are a national country where people are traveling across the across states in cars now all of the time. We need to have, you know, federal regulations. The Department of Transportation mission, the Department of Transportation's mission is to quote serve the United States by ensuring a fast, safe, efficient, accessible, and convenient transportation system that meets our vital national interests and enhances the quality of life of the American people today and into the future. Thank you. The, the formation of the Department of Transportation gave the government permission to set standards for car safety. Very important. So in 1968, seatbelts and padded dashboards became legally required in all new vehicles. So instead of just the industry standard, they were like, nope, it's a law. They have to have them. But it wasn't until the 1990s that motorists actually started taking seatbelt regulations seriously. People were caught a lot without their seatbelts on. And that was mostly in part to national safety campaigns that emphasized their importance. So, and you still see these signs all over the place that it's like, buckle up or die i don't know i'm trying to think of a i'm trying to think of one of the click it or ticket click it or ticket yeah like that became a national campaign because people just weren't doing it and the department of transportation was like that's reckless you know you have yeah like it's there and it's there to keep you safe but people were like oh it's stupid so when people are like uh when uh, there's that common covid thing about the mask where people are like well do you wear a seatbelt in the car and people are like, well, of course, like that wasn't a thing until like 30 years ago, right? Like, yeah, that's like convincing people to wear seatbelts took a really, really, really long time. And now I'm like, yeah, of course it did. Look how, how stupid people are being about masks. Anyway. Anyway, in 1998, the Department of Transportation also required every motor vehicle to have airbags, which I did, never once conceived in my life. I never once thought that airbags became legally required in my lifetime but they were when we were born airbags it's were true. not required isn't that crazy most cars had them but they weren't required um yeah airbags in the last 20 or so years have now become the primary line of defense in an accident instead of the seatbelt. so now when cars are created it is with the airbag safety in mind because they've proven to be mm -hmm more effective than a seatbelt for many reasons. And that is what I have to say about cars and traffic laws. Yay. Yay. So everybody, thank make safe, you. You're welcome. Make safe driving choices. Um, you know, pay attention on your driver's test. Now we don't have to worry about going to a different state and all the laws being crazy different. There are minor differences from state to state, for example, 
in New York, you cannot turn right on red, whereas in Pennsylvania, you can. Mm. But, you know. You can in Maine, too, but I'm always just, so paranoid about it. I'm always like, I feel like I'm you not can literally, <laughs> You can literally everywhere. It's like just Manhattan. It's not just Manhattan. It's in New York City that you can. I'm sure there are other cities where you can't, mm. but manhattan in, in new york city it's like a general known rule so they don't put signs about it most other mm. cities if there's like a place you can't do it there'll be like a lot of no right on red signs That's fine, yeah. at least in my in my personal driving experience i have not traveled the entire world i don't know this for a fact mm-hmm. but that's what i have to say about that Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, iphonewondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at ivebeenwonderingpodcast at gmail.com, and we would love to put it on our show. Sarah. Yeah? Do you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? What are runes? Runes? And like... (laughs) yeah (laughs) the symbols Uh, okay (laughs) like what do they do and like how are they used (laughs) okay all right all this makes sense i feel like i've been seeing them a lot mentioned on like the like various witchy blogs i follow and okay okay yeah we can talk about runes i wasn't expecting this i used to play a lot of runescape as a kid um, don't know anything about runes, but I will look that up for you. Yeah, we can talk about that. Jane, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering? I have been wondering um, about the head in a jar at Madame Tussauds. What is it? Whose head is it? Um, why do they have a head in a jar? What's I just I just want to know more about what's going on there. That's so creepy. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess we're getting real witchy and yeah, I guess start so. of June here. I, li- I yeah. like it. It's like early Halloween. I love early Halloween. Forget Christmas in July. Halloween in June. Halloween in June. Really, we should have done it in May. That's the six-month mark. Whoops. Oh, well. Too yeah. late. I guess I guess we'll Half record Halloween. it. Oh, if we record next if we record next Monday, then we'll be recording on the, on um the Halloween of the mid Halloween on May Halloween, May May Halloween. I'm trying to come up with a pun. pun. May so Halloween. there we go. <laughs> there we go. There we go. We were close enough. We were close enough. We did it. We did it. Halloween and yeah. Halloween and late May, early June. Nailed it. Yeah. Half Halloween. Half Halloween. All right. That's what's coming at you next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is you know what I've been wondering. <laughs> <laughs>